This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. What's up, Zeke? Hey, man. How we doing? How we doing on this Friday? <laughs> Living large and in charge, man. I'm, I'm just laughing so much because uh, for listeners, TK just texted me on Skype and uh, asking if I was ready, and he just said "Big Pimpin," and I said "Up in CHS," you know, like the song "Big Pimpin" up in NYC, but I'm in Charleston, and he responds, "Oh, is this a bad time? Do we need to do another day?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I was finishing the lyric. So, <laughs> what's been on your mind, man? Oh man, nothing but the good life, man. Nothing but the good life. What does that mean? You can't just... <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I this sound is, like that one is... dude, uh, Ty Lopez. Is that his name? Yeah, this is the good life guy. Yeah, this is one of those cultural things where, like, white people, we don't feel like. Have quite the freedom to just to just make up phrases and just, if someone says hey, how you doing you know but if if you pass a black dude on the street and you're like hey how's it going man he's very likely to say something that you've just never heard before and you don't know what it means and you're just supposed oh, to man. know what it is you know like <laughs> i don't know i can't think of an example right now what did that one oh, I, I, dude black, black people make up stuff all the time and it just works <laughs> like like you just know what it means like you can be walking down the street and say what's up dude and some guy will be like, hey, you know how we do. You know how we do. And, and you, and it's just like, yep, I know. <laughs> what did that mean, though? What did that mean? <laughs> I got to start thinking of just making up phrases like that to randomly say. I, I just feel like I won't be good at it, though. I'll just sound so unnatural. I'll be like, um, how it is, friend. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you, you know, so one thing I've been thinking about a lot is just how – how much I have taken for granted the the extent to which um, many people lack a vocabulary for creativity, a vocabulary of what they can do to develop personal power or express personal power, um, especially right now with so much talk going on about politics, so many people feeling afraid, so many people nervous about the world. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to waste our time talking too much about politics. But when I talk with people about something that you and I share in common, which is this view that we have a tremendous amount to uh, a, tr a tremendous amount of ability to exercise influence outside of just arguing over politics and casting a vote, people have no idea what I'm talking about, man. They, they have no concept of that at all. And it makes me wonder, how do people spend their time when it's not presidential election season, when, when, when there's no political hot button issue? to debate about what are people doing 365 days a year that makes them feel like they literally have no power, no way to use their time and energy to improve the quality of their life and change their world. So that's something I've been thinking about more. I've been trying to understand more and just trying to improve my ability to help other people develop a vocabulary for what they can do to make their lives better and the world better just, you know, in their apartment, in their home, you know, on, on any given average day. You know, I was talking to our coworker at Praxis, Derek McGill, yesterday, actually about uh, this same topic. And I kind of, you know, I was thinking about the way that people struggle with the concept of freedom, people who value freedom and want to live free and have a freer world and a freer life. 
And, you know, I sort of thought about my own life. What, what has happened has been basically a 360 degree flip where there was a time where my passion for freedom, it always expressed as I need to be, I want to be free. Therefore, I need to convince other people of something. Now, first early on, it was I need to convince, you know, policymakers to change policies or voters to vote for different policymakers. And then they'll change policies that will then enable me to be free. And then it sort of got more, you know, a little bit more sophisticated. And I think closer to, to, you know, something, some model of social change that actually works of, well, no, I need, I just need to convince people to change their beliefs and their ideas about freedom. And that will change the incentives. And then the institutional changes will happen. Then I can be free. And it was always, my freedom was contingent on persuading a bunch of other people to think something different, to do something different. And it sort of had, I had this realization many years ago that this is kind of backwards, that I think it actually goes the other way around. And now I come from an orientation where I am free. I need to learn how to live as a free person on my own individual level, no matter what external circumstances are, to be free from my own sense of guilt and shame and obligation and whatever other things are holding me back and be a free person. Once I become free, this will now enable me to live in a freer world and it will actually start to help make the world a freer place. It's it's kind of, I, I think we often have it backwards. Like once I convince a whole bunch of people, once everyone else does things, I can finally be free. And that's, that's on the complete opposite of freedom in some way like, well, if only someone else would let me, then I could be rebellious, you know? Or if only someone, and it, it kind of reminds me of the way I think we often view money. like. Well, if only I had a million dollars, I would be creating so much amazing stuff. I have amazing ideas that are hugely valuable, that are amazing. I just need money to create them. And that mindset is so damaging and it's so backwards. If you really have amazing ideas, the ideas are going to be the thing that gets you the money. Start building them now. Start doing them. And if they truly are that valuable, they will attract the money. It doesn't go the other way around. Oh, I can't do cool stuff until I get money. No, you can't get money until you do valuable stuff. And I think it's the same with freedom. You know, you can't expect, I just, if as long as once everybody else finally gives me permission, I'll be free. Well, if you're waiting for their permission, you're not going to be free ever. But if you just start living free now and not worrying about all that stuff, that's not only more likely to make you a free person individually, but to actually result in the world being a freer place. As more and more people see you just living free, behaving free, doing things, you know, creating your own alternatives to the things you don't like. I think it's really hard to get out of that um, that backward mentality of of almost asking asking someone to give you freedom. And you know what's paradoxical about this approach that is all about convincing other people to subscribe to your idea about freedom is that if you go out there and actually try to do this, you discover very quickly that we live in a pretty frustrating world, right? You, you know, you spend a lot of time working on your arguments, developing your, your different ways of communicating and, you know, tightening up your presentation exactly the way you want it, practicing with your friends. And, and you go out there and you try to change people's mind you find that, number one, most people just aren't as interested in it as you would love them to be. 
people are pretty disappointing in terms of how interested they are in philosophy and how much tolerance they have for lengthy discussions. And, and, and usually many of these matters require such counterintuitive thinking, such thorough reexamination of our basic assumptions that, you know, it's pretty hard to just have a two minute conversation where you radically alter a person's worldview. And most people are already asleep by, you know, 10 to 15 minutes into a discussion. Then a lot of people base their opinions on, on, on the way they feel and the way they were raised. And so most people who've gone out there and tried to change people's minds, they sort of come to the conclusion that, you know, most people are, are irrational or most people are wrong or most people, you know, don't think clearly. And what's interesting to me about that is how people can hold both views at the same time. The view that most people don't want the truth or are irrational or wrong and that what I need to do in order to be free or help create a freer world is to convince all those people. And, 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 it, and it, it has always struck me as reasonable that if you think most of the world is irrational, then the most irrational thing you can do is spend time trying to convert people that you think are rational. You know, uh, it, it reminds me of the uh, there's a Holly Berry movie, like a suspense slash horror film called Gothica, where she like works in a mental hospital. But then there's this crazy paranormal experience that happens to her. And now she's put in an asylum and everybody thinks she's crazy, but she's not crazy. But but for whatever reason, everybody thinks she is. And she tries really hard to make her little arguments and convince them through evidence. And then at some point she realizes that, hey, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people whose concept of sa sanity is diametrically opposed to mine. And there's nothing I'm ever going to be able to do to convince them via argumentation that I'm that I am saying. So I got to figure out a way to, to bust out of here, to to influence them by working within their assumptions. And so she, she starts to, you know, treat them as if they are right. But working within that context, she sort of manipulates them in certain ways. She, she incentivizes them to do certain things that will benefit her and so forth. And, and I'm just surprised that this thing that we, would always, that we would all do if we found ourselves in a similar type of situation is something that we totally don't do when it comes to the powerlessness, the powerlessness we feel in relation to uh, the political situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's kind of two layers, you know, one is just the, the stupidity and self enslavement of participation in the political process and letting what you hear about on CNN regarding some election or something or some debate, letting that dictate your mood. I mean, you're basically making yourself a slave to that and it's accomplishing nothing for you or for the world. Um, Remove, moving away from that, as many people do, especially many advocates of liberty, they move to the, it's not about politics, it's just about uh, ideas more broadly and people believing in liberty more. And so it's about sort of educating people on the ideas of liberty. And while there is something to that, I think it's only valuable when you're educating people that want to be educated. And people talk about you know, preaching preaching to the choir is stupid. It's the only audience worth preaching to. They're the only ones that want to listen. Um, and that's that's where it's valuable. So whenever I hear people, you know, I hear a lot of advocates of kind of human liberty and, and freedom or libertarians say, saying things about 
you know, we, whoever this magical we is, uh, libertarians, I guess, need to market the ideas of liberty better. We need to brand them better. If only we package them different, people's feelings and beliefs about liberty would change, and then that would change, you know, the, the institutions, etc. I've always found that is really odd, because when you think about changing the branding of something, is is an incredibly uh, low return on investment way to change the impact of that thing. Let's take Apple, the brand, the company. If you did a survey on people's feelings about Apple, what do people feel about the brand? What's their brand loyalty, their likes and dislikes? And someone said, you know what? See, too many people dislike Apple. So you know what we need to do? We need to send a bunch of people out there to try to convince people to like Apple. We have to try to convince them to like the brand better, just in the abstract. Can, can I write an article that convinces you that Apple really is a good brand? Can I try to talk you into, you know, excuse me, sir, I noticed that you answered uh, your view of Apple is somewhat unfavorable as a brand. I really think it should be favorable. Let me tell you why. Can you imagine if that was Apple's strategy versus just making good products? The brand stuff matters, but it follows from the product. Ultimately, the product is what matters most. Everybody can dislike your brand and then you come out with an amazing new groundbreaking product. They don't care anymore. And I think to me, that's where in, in, the, in the realm of liberty, this idea that like the idea of liberty in the abstract just needs a better brand. Well, why? Opinions are free. Saying you like liberty or don't liber like liberty, that's free. What does that mean? I think changing people's beliefs in a core level to where they they just will be free people and they will not tolerate unfreedom or restrictions on their freedom. You can't just convince them that the abstract value of freedom is valuable. Create things, build the product, live a free life, go start a business. Don't tell them that government schools are bad, build an alternative. Don't just tell them that, you know, this and that policy is bad, create an alternative and live it out and they will flock to the thing that creates more value for them. So create value for people in the free market and that experience, once they have tasted something powerful and valuable like that, their beliefs about the need for uh, you know those products and the kind of world that, that is required to bring them about will change along with it. But I just think it's, it's just such a strange thing. Like if only the branding were better, I just don't think it works that way. I think people care about what impacts their daily lives. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to make a distinction between how people behave based on character and how people behave based on incentives. And sometimes we don't accept a certain form of behavior as valid if it comes from incentives. We only accept it if it comes from the depths of your heart, if it comes from character. And so for a lot of people, there's this attitude of, yeah, I don't like that, Isaac. I don't like that approach of altering the incentive structure and getting people to do things because it benefits them. I only want people to do what's right because they, they love truth for the sake of the truth. Yeah, or they, or they, need, they need to not only buy the product, they need to understand how the product works. They need to know everything about why they like it, you know? Yeah, yeah, like unless people are following the truth because they genuinely love the truth above all else, then nothing else counts. Now, the first thing we gotta say to that is, all right, is it rational? for you to think that, that you're actually going to get that kind of world. 
And, and I don't want to just hear you say yes. I don't want to just hear you mock me for asking the question. I, I want to see what your evidence looks like. Like, what evidence do you have for believing that you can actually produce that kind of world? Like, how are you going to make that happen? The, the, the second thing is most times when people behave in the way we want them to behave, the reasons are based on incentives, not on consciously held ideas. You know, when, you know, th this comes up a lot, for instance, um, when we talk about things like maybe um, discrimination or racial prejudice or things along those lines. When I go to the grocery store and a person of a different gender or a different race is serving me, are they treating me with respect because they consciously hold ideas about my gender and my ethnicity that are friendly? Perhaps in some cases that is true, but I know that in some cases that's false. Chances are the person that's serving you at a restaurant, and I speak as someone who has been this guy, the person that's serving you at a restaurant might hate you. They might despise you. They might be praying while they serve you for you to hurry up and eat and get out of the restaurant because they can't stand looking at your face. But why do they respect you? Is it because they have made a fundamental decision to be a Christ-like, loving human being that treats everyone as if they have been made in the image and likeness of God? Is it because they consciously have thought through the non-aggression principle and the moral integrity of living a life in accordance with it? For most people, it has never gotten that far. For most people, it's simply a matter of, I can't do X to you without doing Y to me. Wait Since I don't want to experience Y, I'm not going to do it. Wait a minute. So you mean like, 12 years ago when you were a bartender at Applebee's and <laughs> you served me that dirty martini, uh, extra dirty, and you were really nice about it, that that was just because you didn't want to get fired? The whole time I was thinking, get your dirty martini <laughs> drinking <laughs> This changes <laughs> everything. <laughs> um, yeah, it, <laughs> oh, man. Politics. I had to pay the I had to pay the bills, man. I had to yeah. do what I had to well, do. I had to pay the bills. Hey, so speaking of work and jobs, you sent me an article earlier this week, uh, just a short, well, all of his blog posts are short, um, Seth Godin post. And I don't know, it's a, it's an older one because I know I've seen it before. Um, and it was really it was really powerful and really valuable kind of reminder. And I like the language he used. And it was about don't let your job get in the way of your work. And in some ways, it's kind of tapping into the, you know, Pareto rule or the 80-20 rule that, you know, oftentimes you're focusing 80% of your time on things that only bring 20% of the results, you know, try to optimize that. And it was also tapping a little bit into doing things that you're passionate about are more likely to be valuable than things that you're just doing. But I think it was also about something that is a really common problem and it's only going to increase as more people work remotely. And that is trying to do things that um, things that no, you would never get in trouble for instead of things that are really valuable. So sort of taking that path of least resistance, doing things that if someone said, what'd you do today? You'd mm -hmm. tell them and they would say, okay, that all sounds legitimate. Uh, doing those things, even if they're way less valuable than doing something that might be harder to explain. Um, give me give me what it was about that article that made you forward it to me and um, you know how that experience has been for you, and I know I've had that. I'll talk a little bit about that too with, with remote work and things like that. 
You know, so when, when you and I first started with Praxis, 90% of our work was creative and 10% of it was administrative. And this is true of the beginning stages of any creative process. The earlier you are in the creative process, the more likely it is that you are doing things like tinkering with ideas, experimenting with new uh, approaches, testing out new strategies. And most of your work is, is fun and high risk and interesting. You're poking the box. You're, you're, you're not sure where it's going to lead. And that is the kind of space where most of your breakthroughs come from. But then as you move forward in the creative process and you begin to succeed, you begin to establish certain patterns, you discover what's working, you, you have customers, you have people working for you and with you, the amount of administrative task or maintenance task begin, begins to increase. And now there are certain things that you need to do just to make sure that all the stuff that you love, all the stuff that you want to do is even possible. You know, if you have customers, you got to update them. You got to send them receipts. You got to check in on them. You got to do all these things necessary to maintain the day-to-day -day operations. It's like, it's just like doing your dishes, doing your laundry, vacuuming at home. These are not necessarily creative activities, but you got to do them in order for anything else to be possible. And one thing that I've realized when I, when, I, when I evaluate my work life is that I often use maintenance activities to hide, to hide from the discomfort and the risk of trying new things. And it's an easy place to hide because it's a place where no one can criticize me and it's a place where people will look at me as responsible. And so I can hide behind the responsible safe things. It's sort of like you said earlier, you mentioned that, you know, the things that are not easy to justify or explain. I can basically divide my day into two kinds of activities. Um, things that if you called me and said, what are you doing right now? I, I could have an easy time justifying and things that if you called me and said, what are you doing right now? I would have a difficult time justifying. My, my so, favorite, so, my favorite days are the ones where not only do I have a hard time justifying, I can't even explain them. <laughs> you know? Yes, 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 yes. Those are the best days. Oh, absolutely. And, and most of my breakthroughs, I mean, pretty much ninety percent of the value I've created for anybody has been the result of spending time in that latter category. Like TK, what are you doing right now? I am taking a walk and just thinking about some things. Oh, are you thinking about how to improve the Praxis curriculum? Uh, actually, no, I'm thinking about this Star Trek animation episode that I watched last night where they were talking about like the Mayan feather serpent, like winged deity. And I'm just kind of like thinking about that concept and it's blowing my mind right now. Um, like that's the kind of stuff that, that would make people worry. Like, uh, man, I think this TK dude might have gone off the deep end. Like, like this brother is supposed to be working and he's walking on the beach thinking about Kuku Khan. Like, what's going on with this dude? You know what I mean? But it's it's spending time in those spaces that stretch my mind, that give me these aha moments. I say, yes, yes, that's it. This is what I need to do. And it's something that's immensely practical. But But that space scares me because, first of all, I don't know what's going to happen in that space. And I like to micromanage. I like to have control. I like to be, I like to be, I like to have my world predictable. And then if someone catches me in that space, TK, what are you doing right now? You know, uh Oh, I, I, I don't like the, the uncertainty of, 
uh, of having to deal with giving an account for my existence in a way that isn't practical and 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 and, and profit driven and and all of the things I've been taught are are responsible. And, and so that article hit me like a ton of bricks because it forced me to be honest about myself and to deal with a sort of guilt that I often feel about needing to be busy, needing to look like I'm working all the time and, and, you know, needing to look like I'm doing something respectable. And it challenged me to think about value creation, not in terms of hours spent doing activities, not in terms of looking responsible or looking like I'm working, but in terms of doing whatever I need to do, no matter how crazy it looks, that has a proven track record for translating into, you know, uh, value for the people that I serve. So, so you're about to say, so this is as good a place as any, Isaac, to announce that uh, for the next month, <laughs> I, I am going to go to a cabin in the woods with no Wi-Fi and <laughs> trust me. But see, that's that's the thing. That's where our mind goes. We get scared. Like, you know, I think if you'd said to someone, what if you had the kind of job where you had the freedom to go take a two hour walk anytime you wanted to, or take a nap in the middle of the day if that's what you needed, or just start reading something that didn't even have a direct relation to your job, or you know, do some long-term brainstorming and blah, blah, blah. People would say, wow, that sounds so fun. That sounds easy. But it's actually, in my experience, much, much harder because we have these feelings of like fear of what if people ask me about this or just, I don't, the outcome is unknown. So what if it doesn't produce anything? Oh my gosh. And I think I have a hard time trusting my own productive capacity, even though every time it's put to the test, like if I have a bunch of known tasks and I've, and, and I'm getting behind on them and I've got a short amount of time, inevitably I crank them out faster than I thought I would when I get to in the zone mode. So like, I know I can do that. So if I go and I spend two hours doing something different, trying, you know, going for a walk, trying to think about things and nothing comes of it. And now I'm two hours behind. I know I can make up for it, but I often doubt my own ability to do that. I also feel this weird guilt to have to fit into some kind of nine to five, eight hours a day mold, which is absurd because there's no need to in my role. Uh, and I actually think in most roles that most people have, I think people are far people's beliefs about what they're allowed to do in their role at their job is many times, uh, far more stringent than what it actually could be if they were willing to sort of fight for this. The four hour work week talks about this a lot, ways to kind of, you know, create that space for yourself. But once you have it, it's really hard. It's really scary. I remember when I first worked remotely um, for the Mackinac Center, you know, I was traveling all over campuses and stuff. And so I was, I was working a lot of weekend events. I was at a lot of evening events. And so during the day, I felt like, well, even though I'm working the weekends and the evenings, like I have to basically work some kind of nine to five. And if I was doing things just sort of like reading about things or trying to immerse myself in certain ideas that I thought might help me or just walking and clear my head, I always felt this guilt and <laughs> and fear. And it was really hard for me to enter in. It's taken me years to get to the point where I can do that guilt-free, but I can tell you I need it. I absolutely need it. I have to take a walk every single day outside without a specific purpose. And what happens is, and I find this when I take a shower because it's the only place where I can't have my phone on me. I can't, it's too loud to be listening to a podcast. I can't be doing anything quote unquote productive. So I'm in the shower. That's always where the best ideas come to me. 
because they just, they flood in all of a sudden it's in, sometimes it's related to business. Most of the time it is because Praxis is sort of what's, you know, in my soul all the time. But other times it's just related to other things. The other day I went for a walk on the beach because I just, I needed to clear my head and I thought, okay, this will let me kind of solve this, this frustration I'm having with business. And instead, randomly, this, this philosophical quandary about the immortality of the soul popped into my head. And I just worked through it in my mind for like 20 minutes. And then I got, I remember I left you a, a Voxer message and I got all hyped up because I, I like had accomplished something mentally. And then I was just in like a much better mood and I was much more productive the rest of the day. It had nothing to do with my work. I just needed to have solved a problem. And the ones I was working with at work were not solvable immediately. So just being able to do something, this is like blogging every day. Like once I write an article, I just immediately am put into a better frame of mind where if I'm working on problems that can't be solved in one day for, for work, at least I created something and it just alters your frame of mind. And every time I do it, I'm like, man, this is so valuable. Why do I have such a hard time giving myself more space to do this? I've gotten a lot better, but it is a huge challenge. Oh yeah, those habits are hard to break because all our lives, we're, we're conditioned to approach the day in that way. I mean, we start school and, you know, that's basically from, you know, like 7:38, I don't know what time they do school now, but like 8:30 whatever to 2:30. And, and so we think of our days in terms of these large chunks, these large continuous chunks from the morning until like afternoon, early evening. You know, when when you work a traditional job, you're working, you know, 8 to 5, 9 to 5, whatever it may be. And so when you have the power to determine what that schedule is, it's easy to just fall into these habits and think, oh, okay, my workday needs to look like a seven to three, eight to four, nine to five type workday. Or if I have 50 hours to be working, then more is better. So I ought to be doing that. And working for yourself really forces you to evaluate your assumptions. I used to know a guy when I was uh, at American Express, he was a financial advisor who made you know uh, about $300,000 a year and he worked about three or four, three to four days a week. And at that time, I couldn't understand that. That just blew my mind because I, I didn't correlate making money with creating value. I correlated it with engaging in activity, being busy and earning money because of the amount of time spent. But, you know, one, th one thing I've learned and that I try to remind myself of every day is that if I am the same person next week, as I was last week, then I'm on my way out of business. So I can be busy all I want. I can put in 80, 90 hours a week and not get in trouble. But if my busyness is keeping me from becoming more interesting and more intelligent, then I'm on my way out because I'm not bringing anything new to my relationships with my clients, with my business partners, with my connections. And, and, and learning to take time away from things that are directly related to work in order to do things that kind of broaden my horizons. It's been one of the most valuable things for my life professionally. Yeah, you know, it's, it reminds me of, um, and we had a four-part series, Beginner's Guide to Startups on this podcast, so go check it out. Listeners, if you haven't yet, it's really, really good. Um, but we talked about in there, what is a startup? And, and I like Paul Graham's definition. You know, he basically says it's it's a it is a fast growth company, a company committed to rapid growth. And when you think about sort of the startup of you, you know, think of me, Inc., think of yourself as a startup. I like to take that same approach. You know, what a small business is, 
you know, it can be any kind of company, but it's one that is more or less repeating the same processes for largely the same amount of customers day in and day out. Maybe they're growing slowly, just little by little, but it's got it's got kind of a ceiling to growth. Maybe a restaurant, you know, you can only serve so many people. Um, or, you know, some kind of service industry that's just sort of, you know, okay, we've got our full slate of clients, our schedule's full, we're good to go. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But a startup is explicitly, its purpose is to grow incredibly rapidly, hopefully exponentially. Um, and I think that's how I want to think about myself. I don't just want to sort of keep repeating the things that have been working and doing well. I want to grow and change exponentially. You know, I want to look at how much have I changed, what percentage value have I added to myself this week, this month, you know, today. Um, so I, I think that's a really helpful way to look at it. That you have to be a different version of yourself. Um, hey man, what are some things you do to do that? You know, one of the big ones is the concept of the PDP, uh, personal development project that, that you, um, you know, you really came up with for the Praxis, uh, curriculum, which is a, a fundamental part of the program is these monthly PDPs. And so, Every 30 days, I give myself a new PDP. It's a set of activities that I'm going to do every single day for 30 days. Um, and they, they're often, there's a lot in common because there's certain things I've found that just I really like that work really well, like writing every day. Um, but they'll take different forms sometimes and I'll, and I'll swap different things out. So my current PDP, which ends in uh, a week, is there's six things every day. Um, I have to do uh, a shit ton of reading, which I left pretty vaguely defined, but uh, like push myself to read a lot every day. Um, shoot, make a hundred baskets every day down at the court here, uh, which is my form. I always had to do some kind of physical exercise. So that's love that. for this month. That's my physical exercise. And I'm actually tracking my three point percentage and it's abysmal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, uh, sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, write down three ideas every day. And this is a James Altucher thing. He, he, he says 10, but I, I did only three. It's easier for me, but write down three ideas every day, business ideas, some sort of interesting new idea. So I have this huge running sheet of the three ideas I've been writing down every day. Most of them are horrible, but I've had one or two really interesting ideas come out of that. And a few that I'm actually, um, acting on and implementing. And then, um, praxis growth, every single day. And that's in three categories. Uh, money, talent, and vision are the three areas that I always, um, I want to make each of those areas move forward in some way every day. That's all I ask. I keep it really low. Like some days I'm going to do a ton. Some days I'm, I'm going to do little, but I want every single day me to do at least one thing to move praxis forward in the areas of money, talent, and vision. Um, and then finally, um, some, some specific praxis tasks uh, for this month. It's primarily some sales related tasks that I have uh, every day. I've got to do something there. So I, and every month I try to swap out these PDPs and then I've tried going without a PDP for a month just to mix it up. Um, you know, I'll try changing up my schedule, having a, a time to get up every morning, having no time to get up every morning and just seeing what happens. Uh, sometimes I'll throw in things like music. I need to do some, some play some music every day or whatever it might be. Um, but that's, that's been really helpful for me to just ask myself if, if I can improve myself by 1% every day, um, you know, what might that look like? And here are some areas that, that I could improve on. Here are some activities that I think if I do them every day will help me get there. And I go from there and I just try it out. I just test it. Now, do you document your PDPs? Could people track along with what you're doing each day or your reflections I, on it? I do it on a Google sheet. It's just a spreadsheet, um, where I mark it off. Um, I don't share it publicly. I don't know. I feel like that's sort of like 
annoying. But if people ask, I'll talk about it. Well, it's interesting you say that because I used to do that. I, I used to announce and share and provide daily updates for my PDP, but I've taken a break from that. I've taken a break from that for about a few months and I still do PDPs, but there's something about the experience of sharing what I'm doing with other people that was really helpful for me in the beginning. It provided yeah. accountability, you know, yep. uh, but it sort of got in the way of my ability to internalize and just digest ideas. I felt like the gap time between interacting with a new idea and turning around, sharing it with the world and offering my thoughts on it, that gap time was too small. And, and it made me realize that I was killing off my ability to just sort of explore and let things sink in by forcing myself to summarize, review and offer an opinion on things. And, and I was getting a lot done, but I wasn't achieving the purpose for getting it done. I wasn't learning and enjoying it. Well, yeah, so I found uh, for me, and I think I've seen this with so many people, and I think you've seen it too, especially with Praxis participants. Early on, if you're just trying to give yourself some sort of habit or discipline like this, blogging every day is a great example. Um, I think it's really important because you can, it's easy to use as an excuse. I don't want to share this with everyone. I need more time to let it sink in, whatever else. And then now that no one sees it, now you start to slack off on it and it's really hard to be accountable. So when you start for me, like I just, I still write every day, but I don't publish something to my blog every day. Sometimes I publish it to a different blog or sometimes it's an email newsletter or something for a longer article for later. I only now became able to do that and still write every day. The only reason I was able to keep blogging every day before was because I knew that it could be visibly seen on my blog and that I had told people I blog every day. And if they go to my blog and don't see one every day, so I that kept me accountable. And I had to do that for a long time, for a couple of years. And I just started to be able to say, I'm gonna write every day, but it's not always gonna be a blog post published on my blog. Um, but it took me a while to get there. I think if I would have started, letting myself sort of off the hook and, and not making some form of accountability like that, it would have been too easy to just sort of let the whole structure crumble. Yeah, and, and this speaks to something we've discussed before about taking a both and approach to strategies. You know, someone, someone might listen to a one person talk about it and say, you should document your PDP. And then another person says, ah, just keep it to yourself. And it's like, oh no, what do I do? Isaac says this, TK says this, it's use both. Use both depending on where you're trying to go, what you're trying to achieve, and what works for you at that time. You know, one interesting bit of trivia about PDPs that a lot of people may not know is that the PDP was originally called the EPD, and that stood for an experiment in personal development. And this came from the idea that I wanted to take a sort of psychedelic, psychonautic approach to studying observing and and just growing as a person. And so I would treat my my mind like a laboratory where I conduct experiments and I would do certain activities not related to psychedelics, but I would do certain activities just to see what happens to my personality. What happens to the way I experience life if I do something like this every day? So when I originally started my blog, it was a, it was an experiment in personal development where I just wanted to know what would happen to me as a person if I show up every single day and write something for a year? I had no clue how much that would change me, but it completely transformed me. And I became so addicted to that experience of being transformed in a way I couldn't anticipate 
by pushing myself to confront a fear, to do something new, to do something unconventional, to do something creative, that I wanted to keep doing it, but I broke it up into 30-day chunks so that I could try a lot of different things and not feel like I'm making a big commitment. So I still do these kinds of things, you know, like I, I would do something like say, all right, every month I'm going to pick a new TV show, I'm going to watch a random episode and do a different one every month for 30 days. I know that just sounds stupid. It's totally random. But what happens to me if I do that? What is that experience like? I just want I just want to say that I did something like that before I die or, you know, take an entire month and every night that month watch a different horror movie. What the heck happens to me if I do that? Like, how does that affect my personality, my ability to appreciate things, to see connections? Um, but but Isaac, thankfully rescued me from the realm of abstraction and eccentricity that I so enjoy abiding in and said, okay, we can't call that an EPD. You need to change that. So we changed that to professional development project. And then, and, and then we had to tighten that up and say, all right, this can't just be all mystical, willy nilly focused around self-actualization. Let's tighten that up and, and make that oriented around achieving specific professional goals. So what we do with the PDP is actually a, a much more uh, specific, goal-driven um, you know, approach to something that originally started as the EPD. But I thought that'd be a bit, bit of interesting trivia that people would like to know. Um, so totally different topic. Can, yeah. we, can we talk a little bit about why I love uh, tinfoil hat people, fringies, nutters, conspiracy theorists, and why I think they're really valuable. Uh, and oh, absolutely. Okay. So I hate this idea. I've always hated it. It's always rubbed me the wrong way. When you see people out there saying things, writing things that they're just so annoyed that backwoods, redneck, whatever, crazies have their crazy theories and they just won't go away. They won't be convinced by science ignore them we need a consensus like this push for haven't we moved on haven't we all come to realize the truth about einstein's theories or whatever quantum mechanics or uh the age of the earth or whatever do we really have to have these crazy young earth creationists or these crazy people who believe this or what and this desire for this homogeneity uh, homogeneity in um, belief and having these sort of big consensus beliefs about like the really big stuff that seems pretty well known and well established. I agree with pretty much all of that really big stuff, the sort of mainstream views on most of those things. But I hate that people have this desire to quiet down the fringes and for a couple reasons. So one is just I find them really entertaining. But two, it's just a fundamental intellectual humility. And I never quite knew the best way to express this, but I just read, I just finished reading, um, But What If We're Wrong, a book by Chuck Klosterman, which is really, really good book. Um, and Zach Slayback and I are actually going to talk a little bit about it on the next episode. But one of the things that, so the, the, the subtitle to the book, and TK, you would really like this, is uh, Viewing the Present as If It Were the Past. And sort of the theme of the book is, if we were looking at the times we're living in now, 200 years into the future, what would we say about them? When, when people said rock and roll, who would they say, oh, this person represents what rock and roll was all about? The way that when we think about certain era of you know British history or entertainment, we say Shakespeare or Dickens. 
That may not be because in the you know you always rewrite the past. The narrative arc is is not what happens in the moment. It's what we later decide the story was, how we later interpret it, and those things are often very very different. So you know somebody living in England in that time, maybe they would not have said Dickens or Shakespeare. And Klosterman gives examples of you know artists who during their life were not considered this dominant defining force, but only years later, because of the way things were sort of interpreted, it was said that, you know, this was the great artist of this era and art sciences. And so his basic thrust is all the things that we think now, okay, we think this is the the way that this is gonna go, or this is the person that's gonna be associated with this, or this is the theory that's gonna win out and we're gonna continue on this trajectory. All of those things, what if they're wrong? What if they're totally off? And he says he's willing to bet that most of those things, whether it's popular artists, scientific theories, whatever, truths about the era we're living in now, it's going to be things that we don't yet see coming that will be the defining um, the defining attributes. Now, now he says, I'm not willing to bet on them. So take like literature. I'm not willing to say which currently obscure writer is going to be known as the defining writer of our era someday in the future because I'd be wrong. I don't know which one of the 500 obscure writers it is, but I'm willing to bet that it's going to be one of those 500 obscure writers rather than one great one. And, and we talked about the betting on the field on a different episode. It's kind of like that. If I said to you, who's going to win the Super Bowl next year? What team is the most likely? You might say, you know, the New England Patriots are the most likely or something like that. But if I said to you, are you willing to bet that the New England Patriots are going to win instead of the entire field of other teams. You'd say, no, it's more likely that someone's going to come out of the field of other teams than it is the Patriots. The Patriots might be the most likely individually, but the field as a whole. And so this concept that, you know, a particular scientific theory, for example, that seems really obvious right now, that may be the most likely theory among each individual theory that we have in front of us to be true. But it's probably also true that if there are 500 theories, the one that's the most likely now is probably in the future not going to be correct. Probably one of those 500 fringe theories is going to end up being true. We just don't know which one. And so I kind of love that sense of humility that like, you know, you don't always know. I wouldn't bet on any of the crazy conspiracy theories I hear out there being true individually, but I would bet that one of the hundreds of crazy theories that you hear out there that are considered fringe is going to end up being true down the road. And that's happened many times. I mean, there's been so many conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. There've been many, many more that turned out to be false, but that's just the point. Like, I, I, I just smile when I hear theories about, you know, whatever, ancient alien theories, theories about, oh, there's, you know, uh, history really was, there's like 500 years missing from history that was made up. And was cr all these crazy theories, I love, I get so excited because I'm always like, someday, one of these is going to end up having been, having been true. We just don't know which one. Anyway, uh, that was a long that was a long ramble. No I mean, man, no, I know no, you're no. a fan of this stuff too. Oh yeah, you know I, I I enjoy listening to and debating conspiracy theories and and analyzing them. I think they're tremendously fun, and there's a lot of philosophical relevance there. I mean, if you really think about what philosophy is or or what it's getting at, philosophy always begins with taking some common sense picture of reality, taking something that we take for granted and, and subjecting it to questioning, right? To saying, what if we're wrong about that? What, what if the mainstream, socially acceptable, 
you know, popular group think idea. What if that's wrong? What if what the authorities have taught us is wrong? So whether you're looking at looking at it through the eyes of Socrates and him questioning people in the marketplace about their ideas about what justice is or what the good life is, or you take the methodological skepticism of Descartes and how he questions something like the the mind independent existence of the external world. I mean, if you read that, Descartes seems like he is crazy to even question that. Of course there's a mind independent. What are you saying with this evil deceiver scenario? Are you suggesting we are mere brains in a vat? Are you suggesting that some manipulative deity is, is putting memories and perceptions into our brain and we're not really experiencing this? Come on. But any person who studies philosophy knows that the purpose of thinking about those questions and, 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 and trying to respond to the skeptical arguments against the possibilities of certain kinds of knowledge or, you know, um, or, or, or arguments about how we might be wrong on things we've accepted as true. The purpose of that is to exercise your mind and to help you understand why you believe what you believe. And I think it's much too easy for people to hide behind the power of knowing that most people will defend them when it comes to their beliefs. And most people are really, if they actually had to debate your average conspiracy theorist, most people who think conspiracy theorists are crazy would actually lose the debate because those conspiracy theorists have at least studied what they believe. Well, they know, it depends, they on know. How, depends on how you define lose the debate. If you mean would not have uh, logically sound responses to arguments, then maybe. But if lose the debate means would be perceived as the one with the better position, uh, they might. The conspiracy theorists might not do so well. The debate is right, 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 right. Debate is about perception as much as facts. Absolutely, they would win the debate 100% of the time by perception, which is precisely just why based on they're the not bad, incentivized. The, yeah, just based on the bad haircuts and humongous uh, glasses worn by you know many of the the advocates alone. <laughs> you know, it, it, it reminds me of the uh, the the NDT BOB debate. Now, now let, let me stop. Let me stop being black for a second and and and, and you know name out the name. <laughs> ND, NDTs. Oh, I can't believe he said that. NDT stands for Neil deGrasse Tyson. BOB is the you know R and B hip hop artist. You know uh, uh what, what's the name of that song? Uh, Beautiful girls all over the world. I should well I uh, 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 what's that? Uh, they got nothing on you, baby. Nothing on you, baby. I don't. You don't know that song? No. Oh man, you you, you, I, I, you need to listen to more R and B. Anyway. So B.O.B., um, he, he's, he's an R&B hip hop artist. And so he, he, he basically at some point became a flat earther and he started putting out all these tweets about how his eyes are open and he's seen the truth. He's seen through the conspiracy. We've been lied to. The earth is really flat. And he's putting up pictures. He's making his arguments and all that kind of stuff. And Neil deGrasse Tyson just basically, you know shot it down. He didn't shoot it down with an argument or anything like that. He just shot it down with mockery and everybody just pretty much started mocking him. And the thing that frustrated me about Neil deGrasse Tyson's response was that I felt like he blew a really good opportunity to just lay out the reasons for why the earth is not flat at a time when people's interest in hearing those arguments is heightened. Most people don't walk around just being interested in hearing arguments for things that we take for granted. 
it's good for them to know what those arguments are, but most people don't have the incentives to learn them. Most people don't care. They don't need to know them. So when someone like B.O.B. challenges that common sense perception of reality and people start tuning in and saying, why is he saying this? It's the opportune moment to educate people and say, look, B.O.B. is is wrong about this. He's gotten some misinformation. Here is why we believe what we believe, or here is how we know the earth is not flat. And you give the arguments and people will listen. And now the people who accept that as true will know why they accept it as true. However, a guy like B.O.B., he studies his position because he has to. He's going to be so mocked by what he believes that he has to have something to say. And if he's in a debate with people, he would be pulling out all these arguments and most people wouldn't even, you know, even be in a position to 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 know what to say to debate them. And, and so I think we miss a valuable chance to do philosophy when when we just laugh at people and say, oh, ho, 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 you're a conspiracy theorist or, or we get angry, you know, kind of like how they did on Fox News when Jesse Ventura went on there, you know, uh, advocating for the 9-11 conspiracy theory that they were just like, how dare you? How dare you imply that our government could ever lie to us? How dare you do that, Jesse? And it's like, hey, that kind of response doesn't help anybody. In fact, in fact, one of the greatest misconceptions people have is people say things like, if you respond to a conspiracy theory, you give it dignity. And I'm not going to do that. And I say, you know what? You're wrong. The reason why conspiracy theories actually have so much life is because the people who claim to, to be the defenders of the truth always run away from conspiracy theories. They never approach it seriously. They never engage it with intellectual honesty. They never give the, the counter arguments. They just mock it. They make fun of it. And that allows the people who believe in the conspiracy theories to say, see, they're scared of it. See, if they had any good arguments, they would have given them. And, and, and I'm not I'm not using that to say that they're all wrong and they're all right. Certainly some conspiracy theories have been proven true. And I believe that some more will be proven true. But some of them are batshit crazy. But either way, <laughs> none, none of them really get analyzed by the people who disagree. You know, not a whole lot. I've always wondered why. Why is agnosticism so unpopular? So, I mean, take something, you know, you talk about, you know, one of the most, to, to me, like one of the most sort of outlandish wild conspiracy theories is the, is the flat earth conspiracy theory. And you take something like that. Most people don't really have any reason whatsoever to believe that the earth is round or flat. They just don't. They've never looked or anything. It's it's whatever their eyes see and then somebody told them sometime. And it's not even somebody that they like particularly respect. Oh, my third grade teacher. Oh, do you think she's super smart and knowledgeable? No, but it was told to me and I haven't heard anyone disagree with it. So right, again, like somebody is, like B.O.B. would say, okay, you just accepted on faith of what somebody else said. You saw some pictures that somebody told you was taken out of space and you're accepting it on authority. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, no, and please, it's, yeah. It's, it's not irrational to say, okay, well, unless I hear anything better, I'm, 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 I guess that's true. But what right, I right, find right. so funny is when someone comes and presents you with something like, you've been lied to, it's not true. You know, the sky is not really blue, it's pink. The earth is really flat. The, the need to immediately stake a position when you really have no reason for it, like why, why is agnosticism not on the table? Why can't you just say, oh, well, maybe, I don't know. I've never really looked into it myself because the minute you say that everyone will label you, 
you're secretly a conspiracy theorist because if you yeah, yeah, yeah. come out and stake a claim and say, I agree with the majority unequivocally, then you must secretly be a conspiracy theorist. Like, why is agnosticism not an option? Why is that not allowed? I mean, there are so many things where I've never looked into it. It would seem pretty far-fetched for something to be true after the vast majority of humanity has thought it was, you know, one way for hundreds of years and all of a sudden the other way. But there's some chance that I guess it could be true. I'm not particularly passionate about it. I don't know anything about it. So I'm just going to say, I don't know. And like, you know, I don't care. I guess if I decide to care sometime, I'll look into it and maybe I will stake a position, but I don't know. But I don't know is like not given to you, which is one of the things that I think is dangerous for yeah. those on the consensus side to, to build up consensus in a way that's not built around the facts themselves or truth, but just around fear or just around being browbeaten into something. That's the very fuel that feeds sort of these conspiracy theories and this, this feeling of, you know, alienation if you start to explore any any other ideas. I just, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't understand why. I mean, in my own life, I find this all the time. Like I have to resist the urge to take a side on something. Immediately I see something. Like everybody's tweeting today about Brexit. You know, England is, has left the EU and it's like, everybody's got all these opinions on it. I, I just had to like check myself and be like, wait, wait, wait. I don't know anything about this. I don't have an opinion on it. I'm completely agnostic and I don't, need to and i don't need to pretend and like quickly oh i see sides i must pick one you know what i mean oh yeah and and the dogmatism actually manifests in two ways so first there's the way you're talking about where people say oh that simply cannot be true and the second way is people say well we just can't know so any amount of discussion or any amount of speculation is an absolute waste of time just please shut up talking about it i don't want to hear another word about the possibility of ancient aliens or any such thing you know, um, because we just can't know. And it's like, you know, it's one thing to say I'm not interested enough in this issue to explore it. It's another thing to say I, I don't think there's enough implication either way for me to waste my time, you know, given the opportunity cost to study up on your theory about this and that, because I don't think it makes much of a difference. But it's another thing to just sort of dogmatically pronounce that it must be wrong or um, it is impossible for anyone to know. Yeah, I mean, every, like, everyone's wasting their time, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, my, my position on a lot of stuff, you know, um, you know, that people say they may have seen or experienced or, or found out, it's sort of like, look, I, I don't have time to read all of these books. You pick any one conspiracy theory, there are like thousands of YouTube videos just on that one theory. There are like dozens of books just on that one theory. I don't have time to cover all of that and research it. And to be honest, I'm not so sure if my position on all of these conspiracy theories is going to radically affect my life because I'm already I'm already skeptical of authority anyway. So I, I don't need to believe in a specific conspiracy theory in order for me to be the kind of person who says that if you if you work for the government, you are just as likely to lie and abuse your power as anybody else. You know what I mean? Like I've seen conspiracy theories on a fifth grade playground. I mean, I've seen conspiracies <laughs> play out on a fifth grade playground. Right. Like like five kids get together and the new kid, you know, it, it, you know, is really good looking or something. And the five kids that are like jealous of the good looking new kid say, we're not going to pass Timmy the ball. We're not going to let Timmy play tag with us. You know, let's not tell him, but let's treat him like this. And then, you know, if Timmy ever says, why are you guys treating me this way? They just all deny it. No, we're not doing anything weird, Timmy. I mean, I, I see conspiracy theories play out 
in everyday life. Human beings lie. Okay, human beings lie about what their real agendas are. That's why one conspiracy theorist, Bill Logel, says I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm an agenda analyst. I analyze agendas, both hidden and overt. You know, so for me, it's just like I, I don't know about a lot of this stuff. Maybe some people are right about some of these things. Maybe some people are not. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to devote my life to trying to get to the bottom of who killed JFK. But, you know, hey, yeah. if somebody has a theory that they that they've researched, more power to you, man. You know, yeah. And, and, and I'm yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think the the dangerous part and this and, you know, the, the Klosterman book, which is not about conspiracy theories, by the way, I sort of I sort of took that and made an extension of, of his concept that, you know, we're probably, yeah. we're probably wrong about a lot, a lot of things. We just don't know which, but you know, one of the, one of the main dangers, I guess, is if you ever find yourself in a position and I have many times, and I'm always trying to sort of combat this where you feel this psychological need for some argument to just go away. Like, ah, uh, the fact that people who believe X even exist, the fact that this argument is even out there, like threatens my existence, it must go away, it must be stamped out. Can't we just browbeat these people into never bringing this up again? Um, I agree that there are beliefs that are dangerous. There are beliefs, people have done horrible things based on uh, different bad ideas that they had. But I think being threatened by the mere existence of arguments or positions or theories um, is a problem. And it's probably in history been a bigger problem with people being afraid of certain arguments, being the ones who commit the aggression or whatever to stomp out those you know, minority views than the other way around. Um, and just personally, psychologically, like I don't want I don't want to live every day where like, I can't be happy because somebody on Twitter tweeted out some crazy theory that I disagree with, you know? Oh, man. I mean, what a waste of time. You know what I mean? Like, what a waste of time. Life is finite. Energy, resources is finite. Opportunities, finite. Or I mean, is it? it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Like, let's end on that note. I like that. I like that. Hey, good, good point. Uh, okay, so... I'm going to give recommendations for this week. I've got two. Uh, the first is the book that I mentioned by Chuck Klosterman, But What If We're Wrong. Um, good book. Really fun. Pretty easy read. Got some got some really interesting stuff in there. Wide ranging. But the second one is a podcast that I've been listening to that I'm absolutely loving. Steve Patterson, who has been on this podcast a few times, um, he has a podcast called Patterson in Pursuit, and he interviews a lot of different uh, professors and experts and everything from philosophy to quantum physics to he does, he has some on religion and they're really, really good. And my favorite episodes are the ones where he does a, he, he does a breakdown of the interviews that he's done. So he's got episodes where he's interviewing people and then episodes where he's sort of breaking down the interview and inserting his own commentary about what was discussed. Really, really good. Check it out. Patterson in pursuit podcast. Man. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, for book recommendations based on my, my optimistic outlook. What are some things that influence you? And I, I would honestly say more than any kind of self-help book I've ever read, it is the methodological skepticism of Rene Descartes that I referenced earlier that has been really beneficial to me forming a constructive, healthy outlook on life. Because unlike what I see happen a lot in this world, I don't give negativity a free pass. I don't treat negativity with a kind of skepticism that um, you know, I don't treat positivity with a kind of skepticism that's different from negative negativity. Uh, whatever it is, if, if I have a judgment like 
this day is crap or nothing's going to work out or the world's going to go to hell. I always put myself, you know, give myself the burden of proof. Like, give me some evidence for that, TK. Like, how do you know that's true? And uh, I owe it to Rene Descartes, Meditations on First Philosophy, for really teaching me how to take basic things that seem difficult to question and how to imagine an alternative reality where that's false. And then how to put myself in a position where I got to say, all right, why do I believe one reality over the other? I love it. All right, man. Um, All right, man. We'll talk uh, next week. Looking forward to it.